0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. We speak with national radio commentator, writer, public speaker, and author, the legendary Jim Hightower. And after that, economist Lou Daly from the Demos Institute speaks with us about the growing income disparity in America here on The Public Morality. Does democracy work best when government reacts to the people or the inverse? Unless one is a despot, I suspect an overwhelming majority, at least in theory, would offer democracy works best when government reacts to the people. But it has been more than 40 years since government reacted to the people. And since 1978, it is fair to say that the people have reacted to government regardless of the party holding the White House or Capitol Hill. In late spring, a CBS New York Times poll asked, which comes closer to your view? In today's economy, everyone has a fair chance to get ahead in the long run? Or in today's economy, it's mainly a few people at the top who have a chance to get ahead? The result? 61% felt it's mainly just a few people at the top who have a chance to get ahead. With more than four decades under a right-wing ethos, Is it time to ask if liberalism is the long term answer for the middle class? Who better to tackle that question than my guest today, Jim Hightower? A self described recovering politician, Hightower is a national radio commentator, writer, author, and public speaker. He is the closest example we have today to William Jennings Bryant meets Will Rogers. Jim Hightower, welcome to the Public Morality.
1: Well, it's great to be with you, uh, Byron, and uh all all the more moral uh, that we can be, all the better.
0: Absolutely.
1: We need more moral Mondays across America.
0: <laughs> uh, and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There you Wednesday. go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to set our conversation in context because I use liberalism as an orthodoxy, mm-hmm. and I see populism as a means by which that orthodoxy comes to fruition. How do you define that?
1: Uh, well, the I, I am essentially a uh, populist uh, by nature and, and somewhat by birth. Uh, you know, I didn't even know what didn't know the word at all. Uh, I, I just knew that my parents had a small business uh, in the little town of Denison, Texas, uh, and they were constantly, you know, having to battle the uh, Walmart uh, types, the chain stores, and the and and they you know were were fighting the bankers uh, and et cetera, going hat in hand to get a little loan uh and uh, you know they didn't they, they knew that uh that money and power was essentially against them and they were rebellious about that uh but they didn't also didn't know what it was and then when i went to college at north university of north texas i uh, had a textbook uh, that had a, a history textbook that had a whole bunch about populism. And I uh, reading it and understanding it and found out, well, that, that's, uh, that's me and that's my parents and that's what we came from. And so that's been my, uh, my political spirit uh, ever since, uh, which is the reality that uh, money and power uh, seeks to get more of both uh, for themselves at the expense of the rest of us, and that is the defining political fight uh, in our country.
0: Now you said you were you were born in Denison, right? Yes. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't Eisen, wasn't Eisenhower born in Denison?
1: Ike was. He spent his uh, almost most of his first year there. he later said when he was running for president that he was born in denison by mistake that really impressed the locals
0: yeah i'm sure i'm sure well (laughs) but but texas is also i mean you 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 just said that um you were sort of populist by birth but populism is in the 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 lifeblood of texas that was like the birthplace right
1: very much so exactly right and it is still the I, i think the defining instinct of uh... Uh, the prevailing instinct rather of, of the people of of our state uh you know people uh, you, know, you you could have asked you know if a poster had gone to the door of my father's house and he had answered the doorbell and, and the poster said are you a liberal or a conservative he would have said well I'm, I'm i'm a conservative but again when you talked about uh, the power of big oil down here in the state legislature the, the power of uh, the walmarts to squeeze out small business uh, and the amazons to do the same thing you know the, the, the power of the big guys to run roughshod over workaday people, uh, you know, treating us like, you know, they're the top dogs and we're just a bunch of fire hydrants, you know, out here in the countryside. <laughs> well, uh, then you would have scratched a, uh, a, a William Jennings Bryan, I mean, a full-fledged uh, populist uh, rebel. Uh, and Texas was founded by people exactly like that. Uh, in fact, the first state constitution here outlawed banks. <laughs> you mm-hmm. were not allowed to create a bank. Uh, And because they exploited people, Texas was settled by people coming across from North Carolina, from Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee and all the the way over then across Arkansas and Louisiana and into our state. Uh, And these are people who were driven out by these moneyed powers, Uh, and and they didn't want to create the same system here. And, in fact, to create a corporation in Texas under under the first constitution, you had to have a two-thirds vote. Of both houses of the legislature to do that. Uh, that that is a different kind of spirit uh, than we see reflected in the politics of our state these days. But you know, you might well say, Byron, well, high tariff of all that's true. If Texas is so populous, why are they why are they electing people like Rick Perry, uh, a guy who really puts the goober in gubernatorial, by the <laughs> way? <laughs> why are they electing Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz and you know these uh, these people? Uh, well, they're not. Uh, the people are not voting, and that's because my Democratic Party, and, and uh, as you know, I was, uh, you know, much to the amusement of the people of Texas, elected uh, to two terms here as a state agriculture commissioner. Uh, but uh, the, the, the people these days uh, are not hearing from my Democratic Party candidates uh, the kind of message that speaks to them uh that's because uh our democrats were persuaded that uh they could take that corporate money too uh and then throw that at the television sets and you didn't need a grassroots campaign well that's not, we've been getting about 40% in every gubernatorial campaign uh since we began that uh right around the, uh, the late 90s uh so people are not hearing uh their their, their interests uh, and their aspirations, uh, their their idealism expressed uh, by any political candidate. So it's not that they've turned conservative or right-wing or Republican. They quit voting. We had the lowest voter turnout in the country last year. We had the 28% of the people vote. Uh, that means that uh, these right-wing Republicans are getting elected with about 17% of the people uh, and uh, of the eligible voters. And But uh, we're not getting... 18 (laughs) percent, and we won't until we build that grassroots politics back again.
0: You know, when you were talking about that grassroots politics, I was thinking back to the 60s Mm -hmm. when there was a – from 60 to 68, there was a grassroots – major grassroots movement every year. Oh, yeah. And we had civil rights legislation. We had change in public opinion on Vietnam conflict. We had – all kinds of uh legislation uh, the great society reacting to the civil rights movement right. and then and then in the early 70s you had what that tree hugging uh environmentalist richard nixon um uh, signing a lot of uh environmental legislation uh, uh, but but since that time the activism that you've talked about has been largely absent. what what happened
1: well, I, I, I do see it coming back, uh, though, Byron, uh, today. You're, you're right. Uh, I mean, it faded, well, again, because of money. Uh, and, and the National Democratic Party uh, did the same thing that the Texas Democratic Party was doing, it quit talking about uh, the things that, you know, working stiffs and dirt farmers, uh, uh, consumers, environmentalists care about, uh, and instead be very vague and try to get those independent Republican voters know, there are about seven of those in Texas. (laughs) 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 And so, yet, yet my party's been pitching its its main message to to those people, missing the vast majority of folks that are out there. Yet, if you look at the grassroots level, all across the country, certainly right there in North Carolina, with the uh,
0: Moral um, Monday Monday, uh,
1: movement, uh, Reverend Barber and others, uh, that are going on, the labor efforts there, the postal workers, they've come alive. Uh, there's, There's so much... Going on at the grassroots, and we see that in the fight for 15. I mean, these are the least likely people, workers in America, to rebel. Right? They're 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 low educated, very low income, highly vulnerable uh, workers uh, in fast food joints, and yet they're challenging the bosses. They're taking the risk of losing their jobs, and a bunch of them have. Uh, but they're out front on it. They're in the streets. Uh, we we see it in the uh, Black Lives Matter, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 similar uh, efforts uh, like that. Uh, explosions really around the country, emotional explosions, uh, uh, and we we see it uh, in uh, farm aid and the farmers' rebellion. I was at farm aid. Uh, last year which was held there in raleigh mm-hmm. uh, north carolina and we we had local farmers and fisher people uh, who were in there telling us you know how they were being squeezed by the big poultry uh, people and et cetera uh, tremendous story and rebellion at the grassroots level so you know the, the people as i say the people are revolting in the very best sense of that word <laughs> that, that they are beginning to understand Things like this Trans-Pacific Partnership that's Mm -hmm. literally going to take away sovereignty from the American people and turn that over to corporate tribunals uh, to, to be able to overturn our own laws that we have passed at a national state or even local. Level so so and and it looks like we might have defeated this Trans-Pacific Partnership. The battle's not over yet, but it's been a tremendous fight uh, that is going on uh, that is going on with that one. So uh, and and even against the big money in politics, you know, seventy-eight percent of Republicans want to overturn that Citizen United decision that unleashed corporate money uh, onto our elections, onto our democracy. Uh, You know, roughly almost ninety percent of the people overall want to repeal that, Uh, yet, you know, Congress won't even talk about it, (laughs) and neither party really fights that hard for it, Uh, but the people are rebelling, and they are passing resolutions at a local level, demanding that Congress send a constitutional amendment to the people so we can overturn that. We, the people, want to vote on it. Well, that's a pretty powerful message, and that builds over time, you know. Um, my, my, speaking of farm aid, my friend uh, Willie Nelson uh, uh, points out that you've just got to persevere in these long fights because, as he said to me, the early bird might get the worm, but it's the second mouse that gets the cheese. <laughs> you have to ponder that a little
2: bit. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, in all, in all fairness, uh, Jim, just I just, uh, in spirit of complete honesty, my f- uh, family, my uh, from a little town outside of tech, uh, outside of Waco, McGregor, mm-hmm. and some from Waco. And then some uh, outside of Fort Worth, so I I got a little, I got a little Longhorn state in me, just a little bit. Absolutely, I
1: know McGregor. I've been there. (laughs) My politicking days, I went just about every place. Well,
0: I'm I'm sure, I'm sure you did. (laughs) Um But but just but what you just said and and, um, about this movement coming back, and you think about the history of the progressive movement, civil rights movement, women's movement—is the moral to the story uh, that democracy? for an unengaged electorate will invariably lead to oligarchy?
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, oligarchy uh, keeps trying to recreate itself uh, and then expand and extend itself. Uh, and, and unless the people are vigilant and constantly uh, um, well, uh, attentive to what's going on, uh, then it will creep in on you. But and, and that's what's happened over the last 30 years. I mean, think about it, Byron. We've gone from... Ronald Reagan's uh, trickle-down economics to the Koch brothers' tinkle-down economics
0: well, at the uh, tune of eight hundred ninety million, right? That's yeah, the,
1: yeah, right. And yeah. and you know, you you cited in some materials I, I've seen the writings that you have done uh, the uh, the rise of poverty in this. We got a third of the people in our country that who are either in poverty or in what's called near poverty, right? <laughs> uh, and uh and and yet, you know, Washington won't even talk about it. When we talk about it, well, when they do talk about it, they say, "Well, what we need is to uh, drug test those people on food stamps, you know, and we need to cut back on unemployment compensation, and you know all this kind of nonsense that they that they put out." Well. You know there's no saying that even a dog knows the difference between being stumbled over and being kicked, and people are now realizing waking up to the fact that we're being kicked uh and that is that it's not just you know here's here's some uh african American people over here uh here's some immigrants over here here's uh you know some workers uh, over there uh but it's it's all of us Jesse Jackson used to say we might not all have come over on the same boat, but we're in the same boat now. And that's a powerful political reality, and that's what I see spreading across the country. And now the forming of coalitions, not just a few groups, but groups getting together, understanding that uh, we're all in this together.
0: Well, Jim, what I'm hearing you say uh, also, a part of that paradigm shift is what I hear you saying is that beyond talking in terms of left-right, we've got to now be talking in terms of bottom-up.
1: That, that's the real political spectrum in, in our country, uh, and, and that's where populism enters in. Whether you call yourself that or not doesn't matter. Uh, but but I, I think we all, you know, whatever we want to call ourselves, we, we begin to see uh, the reality that right to left is theory. Uh, <laughs> that's ideology. Uh, but uh, top to bottom, uh, that's your zip code. You know, you know where you are. That's your paycheck. Mm-hmm. You understand your relationship and and now those those powers at the top uh think that they can uh, can just run uh, roughshod over us and that there will be no payback for it but now uh, again uh I, I i begin to see uh this uh this honest rebellion and the coming together you can have rebellion and that, that's it's got to start there but it's it's not just you know pitchforks uh uh and torches uh it it's got to be the grub hose of, of grassroots politics uh the digging into the grassroots uh to build something strong and that something strong has got to be uh, genuine uh principled issue-based people-based politics
0: now how do how do you and i I know this is hard when when people get involved and their emotions get involved which 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 are which are good Uh, but at the same time how do you strike that balance of having the requisite emotion so that you're out there in the struggle and the fight, but at the same time, not just be angry.
1: Well, that's why you, that's why you need organization. I, I, I compare, you know, there, there's some groups, uh, uh, certainly the, the Moral Monday effort, uh, uh, but there's like the Working Families Party in New York State, but now in about seven different states. Uh, there's the uh, National People's Action based in Chicago, but they've got 18 states that they, that they're organized in building that political power, uh, by, connecting people together, connecting them with the information and skills that you need to be able to do this, training them, uh, et cetera, recruiting people to, to run campaigns and to run for a political office, uh, you know, beginning at a local level and right on up. So I, I, I compare all of this, this kind of organizational work to a little hardware store that's just a, a few blocks from where I am now in South Austin uh, called Harold's Hardware. And and it's a little bitty store. It's not one of these big box things. Uh, but you can go in there. You don't have to buy that whole carton of nails. You know, They'll sell you two nails, three, or whatever you need. Uh, they, they'll say, well, what are you trying to do? Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to build this desk. Well, let's pencil it out here and see what you need. They'll loan you a tool. You can take a power saw home and bring it back. <laughs> and, and the slogan at Harold's Hard, Hardware is, uh, together, we can do it yourself. You know, and that's got to be our slogan, mm-hmm. because we can't do it ourselves. But if when we get together and develop those skills and develop a unity that is actually a movement that can move, then we're getting somewhere.
0: But I, I but I see, you know, we, at least we're told on paper that the economy is proving Wall Street is roaring. There's very little uh, connection between Wall Street and Main Street. Seventy-three percent of the people favor what the president's doing in Cuba. Fifty-three percent uh, favor legalizing marijuana, and I read your piece on your good friend Willie Nelson over the weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, seventy. Well, we almost sixty percent uh, uh, favor gay marriage. We want minimum wage by seventy-one percent. But when it comes to bring these things to fruition, Washington is silent. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, Washington is money. I mean, the the, the money powers. Uh, control DC. I mean, and Congress, uh, uh, and unfortunately, the to, to a large degree, even the White House. Uh, Democrats are better at this than in Washington than the Republicans are. The Republicans cheer it, uh, but the Democrats are not putting uh, themselves uh, on the line uh, to change it. Uh, as you say, the, the people are overwhelmingly uh, want that change. Uh, but they're not standing up, so we, you know, we can wring our hands about that or we can join hands out in the countryside, uh, as North Carolina did a few years ago when you passed uh, public financing of your elections, mm-hmm. and that had a tremendous impact in that state. You were electing increasing turnout, getting uh, uh, just ordinary people and uh, ethnic and uh, racially diverse people uh, running for office and winning uh, through that process. It made a huge change. Some bastards uh, overturn that, uh, but you know, we can build it back, uh, and that's what I think we've got to do not wait on Washington. The most important election, uh, 2016, of course, is the presidency, but it's the one we're going to have the least effect on. The, we, in addition to making sure you know who we're voting for uh, for president, though, we need to put a lot of energy into who's going to be. Uh, Council and a mayor and county commissioner and state senator and that sort of thing, and then you build a movement up from from the ground. So that that is is, is where I think we have to put our energy.
0: My um friend, colleague at the Winston Salem Journal, where I also write an opinion column, um, mm-hmm. that carries my column. They also carry your column. I've I've noticed that. And uh, John Rayleigh, uh, the editorial page editor, my friend, um, sent me an email. And he found out I was interviewing Jim Hightower. Mm. And he said um, he wants to know that he says you write these wonderful, tight, 300-word spats, perfect for filling small holes. That, that's a quote-unquote. Right. He okay. said, And he said he wanted to know, was that by design or was that an accident?
1: It, it is by design. I set out to do uh, radio commentaries, which I still do, daily radio commentaries, a little two-minute Pops of Populism, we call them. Uh, They're on about 175 stations around the country. Uh, And in writing those, uh, that's where I learned to do that, because they were to be two minutes, and as you know on any broadcast medium... Uh, it's two minutes period. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> yeah. don't get two minutes and three seconds. Uh, so I, I finally learned that at my pace it's about, uh, 300 to 310 words. Uh, and then that means you've got to develop a little craft of, you know, get an opening that might, People might pay a little bit of attention, get their attention at the top, then tell a story and then come to some conclusion and maybe some action that people could take, all of that in two minutes' time. So, yeah, so I had to learn to do that.
0: I want to go back to something, um, talking here with Jim Hightower. I want want to go back that we have gone, and you mentioned it earlier, from we the people, and we're gradually becoming we the corporation. Hmm and and i know organizers i know i know organizers a big piece of that but why is that in your view um just not a, causing a reenactment of shay's rebellion uh
1: well i i think it is uh again you see it in the fight for 15 i mean that, that was a that was a pipe dream 2 years ago and now it's happening mm-hmm. i mean states and cities and corporations companies are stepping forward saying, hmm, "Okay, we could do 15." Uh and and that changes the economy entirely and it, and it changes the way people uh, think about their own power as well as, you know, the, the the economy. So so that sort of thing is uh is happening and corporations have just severely overreached uh and people feel that uh in terms of, well, I just saw it the other day. You know, we've had the you know, the unemployment rate keeps falling. Uh, and so so we we keep creating jobs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Perry ran all over, running all over now, uh, saying, I, I created a million jobs when I was governor of Texas, a million jobs. But, you know, you could go down here to a cafe and say to a waitress, Do you know Perry's created a million jobs? And she'd say, yeah, I know, I have three of them. Right and that's that's real life again that's the top to bottom experience uh you know saying jobs is not saying anything uh and and I notice another thing Byron. when they when they talk about job creation uh they talk about numbers we we created this number of jobs but not the wages yet when they talk about uh the stock prices they don't talk about uh, the uh, General Electric uh, sold three thousand more shares of stock. They talk about the price of that stock that went up. So, so on on the on the money side, they talk about what matters. On the job side, they don't talk about what matters. And I think people are catching on to that. We,
0: we well, uh, I have been calling um, for some time now, and uh, I've been writing about it that we are we ought to have a quality index attached. To that job report every month bingo,
1: yeah, and I yeah, i mean and I mean that, that's just so much common sense that' it, that it it doesn't warrant a response uh, <laughs> it, it's so straightforward and again uh it's it's just true and and people see it. But we need a politics that talks about that all the time, not just, you know, you in a column and me in a radio commentary over here and some politician saying something about it. But but we all ought to be talking about that on, on a consistent basis because the people already know it. I mean, you can see the heads begin to nod mm-hmm. the moment you, in, in a speech, you know, you begin to say stuff like that. I mean, people get it because they're experiencing it.
0: Finally, um... With a slight change of subject. Uh, I wonder if you wouldn't mind saying just a few words about your dear friend Molly Ivins.
1: Oh well, <laughs> uh, the the best there is, uh, best there ever was, I think. Uh, just a fabulous uh, writer. I, I, I've, when I first read her in the Texas Observer, and I ended up being lucky enough to follow her as editor of the Texas Observer uh, many moons ago, uh, but. When I first read her, I thought, "My God, nobody can write like that. It's got to be some machine or something." <laughs> uh, but it's too spiritual to be a machine, and so uh, she's just a uh, uh, just a, a wonderful uh, presence uh, and an important voice. You know, she she began as sort of a writer, you know, with a, with a lot of fun and et cetera, uh, but she she came fairly quickly to moving into this sort of populist uh, spirit and attitude, and talking about, you know, who has power and who doesn't and why that is. And and as you know, you know, journalism, they'll teach you the who, what, when, where uh, sort of part of journalism. But the most important thing that journalism mostly ignores these days is why. Why is this happening? <laughs> who is doing this? <laughs> what are they getting and what are they denying us?
0: Like I said in the opening, uh, talking to you is indeed a conversation best described as William Jennings Bryan meets Will Rogers. (laughs) Jim Hightower, thank you so much for being on the public rally.
1: Anytime. Thank you, and thanks for the great work you're doing.
0: Thank you. That was Jim Hightower coming up. We will continue this discussion with Lou David. Lou Daly is Director of Policy and Research for the Demos Think Tank in New York. He currently leads Demos' Beyond the GDP Project, a multi-year campaign to advance alternative indicators of well-being and sustainability in federal and state governance in the United States. He is author, along with Stephen Posner, of Beyond GDP, A New Measure for a New Economy, as well as Unjust Desserts. How the Rich Are Taking Our Common Inheritance. We often talk about income disparity, but rarely do we ever get to that so what part of the analysis. What is the current income disparity, and why is it detrimental to the overall health of the economy?
2: You ask a great question uh, about the so what part. Um, but starting with the data on where we are, uh, it's pretty clear that we are the, the most unequal let's just say, wealthy country, industrialized country in the world, and that's been true now for several decades. And also, in terms of our own history, at this point, we have the highest rate of inequality that we've seen here in the U.S. since World War I. I'd also add that on many measures of not just income but well-being, such as health, exposure to violence, social trust, we are off the charts. Um, relative to our wealthy counterparts, say, in Europe. And also, we rank below in in many well-being measures, we rank below many countries that are considered significantly poorer in GDP terms, such as Costa Rica. Now, I think there are three big reasons why the sort of so-what question with inequality, why it's bad. One, I think it's highly correlated with lower well-being in a population. Excellent resource on this with a lot of great research and data. It's called The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. But basically what they show is that more inequality leads to more insecurity, more anxiety, and more stress, and less social trust, all of which translates very clearly into poorer physical health on you know, many measures. So inequality reduces well-being. Another big area is in, that inequality leads to social isolation, right? As affluent people kind of cluster themselves away out of self, sort of self-regarding either indifference or in some cases sort of delusional fear of the rest of us, that leads to social isolation or at least, a, you know, a loss of social cohesion. And then the hoarding of wealth and income at the top quite literally closes doors on opportunity uh, for people who are born without social advantages. So we see a lot of data showing that upward mobility, which sort of used to be the hallmark of the U.S., at least sort of the myth of the U.S., has really stalled. And that has a lot to do with the fact that most of our income growth as a country is flowing to the top 1 or
0: 5%. Now, when you when I asked you that question, you, you began by saying that um, we've had the, the greatest uh, in- inequality gap since World War I. But post-World War II, there was a decline in inequality that, that, that gave birth to the middle class. What were those factors that led to that uh, decline in inequality post-World War II?
2: You know, first I'd say out of the crisis of the Great Depression – We built a kind of new legal foundation for a strong social contract in America. Of course, I'm referring to the New Deal. So we passed laws that uh, legalized and protected collective bargaining of workers, which led us by the mid-50s to have about 35% of our workforce with collective bargaining rights. Second, we established minimum wage and other labor standards, so we created a sort of wage floor that lifted everyone up and became a basis for the middle class. Uh, and third, we started to de- develop uh, dimensions of the social safety net for people who fall through the cracks of the labor market. So that came out of the New Deal. And then the, the war economy of when we decided to enter World War II significantly reduced unemployment, and also set a new framework for our tax code. I think at the the peak of the war, uh, the top uh, marginal tax rate was something like 90%. And so in the decades after World War II, we, we entered into that period of peaceful growth with an extremely progressive tax code. Compared to what we have today, so that really helped to equalize wealth. And so the trend you saw, what you're referring to, is that as our economy grew, basically people at all part in all parts of the distribution were gaining equally. It sort of was a rising tide lifting all
0: boats. And so, and you mentioned you know that government involvement. We certainly would include the GI Bill in that, would we not?
2: Yes. So I was going to add. The GI Bill, particularly in regard to uh, giving access to um, lower-income people coming back from the war to higher education, and also um, home lending that significantly ex- uh, expanded home-, home ownership. I will add, though, Senator Warren g- gave a famous speech a while back where she kind of laid this all out, Sort of similar terms to what I'm describing, as she put it, we, as a as a country, as a people, democratically ratified, we built the middle class. I would put a caveat on that, however, and say actually, we built the white middle class because if you look at, for example, Social Security, that excluded domestic workers and farm workers. Right. You know, which are, which were disproportionately occupations filled by people of color. Um, Also, federal home lending and the GI Bill, unfortunately, were applied in discriminatory ways that excluded, significantly excluded people of color. It was only really, I think, translated into a black middle class story uh, in the 1960s, Um, and I think the big part there was, again, a contribution of government, but it was uh, the civil service and the um, executive orders that Lyndon Johnson authorized to significantly diversify the civil service sector.
0: And when you say the um, discriminatory practices, you're, t- you're talking about even if they had access to the loan, that local communities would not allow blacks to enter. Is that, is that what you're referring to? Yes.
2: So the whole pattern of redlining, which we see in home ownership and also in the, in the availability of credit,
0: So, looking at this current economic inequality that you've you've written about uh, so forcefully, how did we get where we are today?
2: Basically, uh, I'd put it this way. Just as we kind of reached a point of historically low inequality, the mid-1970s was the low point because of all of these institutional factors that we've just laid out, the low point of inequality in our nation's history. And... Also, um, with people of color and communities of color being mobilized and uh, uplifted by civil rights and the executive orders with the civil service, those sorts of things that I just mentioned, we really were moving in the direction of becoming a truly egalitarian society, and basically we had a revolt of the elites who didn't want that, to see that happen, and they took over one of the two major political parties and set about to systematically undo the social contract that we had built out of the crisis of the Great Depression. I think that's the story in a nutshell, and I think one of the primary vehicles of that was the opening up of uh, or the deregulation of campaign finance, which just opened up the floodgates for those with the resources to you know, literally take over the political system through the electoral process.
0: And to and to your point, um, the, the Koch brothers have committed what eight hundred eighty nine million for this next campaign for twenty sixteen.
2: Yep, yep. And they seem to. They don't seem to mind that everyone's, uh, you know, that that's in the headlines. They're bragging about it.
0: Yeah, that, that you know that's amazing how far we've come. Let me ask: In your opinion, where should the minimum wage be right now, based on the work that you've done?
2: Uh, I would say t- between 12 and $15, depending on the region. You know, maybe in a, take New York State, where we just passed a, a $15 minimum wage for fast food workers. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense in New York City, but maybe closer to 12 would make sense in upstate. And I'm not sure if they're going to be able to uh, make those sorts of adjustments, but depending on cost of living in an area... I would say between twelve and fifteen.
0: So you're so you're saying not only that range, but that it also it needs it needs to be regional. It needs to be a regional. What's in San Francisco may not be what it should be in Cheyenne, Wyoming.
2: I don't think so. I think um, you know our our allies in the in the um, living wage movement and some of the research other research organizations might disagree with me, but that's that's my point of view.
0: Mm-hmm. Isn't part of the challenge today a, a, a function of productivity, outpacing wages, which really started around 1969, am I right, around that area?
2: Yeah, so you're referring to the growing gap between productivity and, and wages, a yes. kind of a, um, decoupling that's happened over the last 30 years, and that's definitely true. Um, can just look at the graph and just see the decoupling uh, and you know i think a major explanation for that is the decline of collective bargaining which has you know sort of disabled workers from being able to claim their fair share of the the profits that they are generating i would also add however that overall our productivity over the last say 30 years our growth rate has been decelerating
0: mm-hmm.
2: compared to, de- you know, the post-war decades when we really did have a boom. And I think that's reflective of, you know, an other an, an other neg- negative aspect of inequality, which is that, you know, if you're hoarding resources in the top, you're trading off uh, with in potential investments in your workforce, investments in science, investments in infrastructure, et cetera, that were the foundation of productivity growth in the post-war decades. But we've seen a trend line of disinvestment in those things over the last 30 years as we become more unequal and more and more income is controlled by fewer people. And so, yes, the productivity wage gap is significant. We've got to close that by empowering workers again. But there's also a sort of macroeconomic trend here that we need to fix with those sorts of um, collective investments and reinvigorating that.
0: What do you say to those who wish to push back against, the, say, the minimum wage, you just, the range you just discussed, to say that if you raise it between, say, 12 and $15 an hour, that would be a job killer for low-income individuals?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes it goes further and gets, uh, uh, you know – get accused of class warfare. So on the minimum wage, I think the overwhelming, I think there's been polls, et cetera, of, econo- of economists, and I think the overwhelming thrust of the evidence is that, um, you know, raising minimum wage is not a job killer. Um, you know, there have been studies of, nat- you know, sort of natural experiments where one state raised a minimum wage, their minimum wage and an adjoining state didn't, and you, you didn't see any resulting job kill, you know, killing from that. So, you know, I just think empirically, it doesn't make sense. Um, if you put more money in the pockets of people who tend to spend almost everything they earn um, just in their everyday life, by definition, that money is going right back into the economy. Uh, and so you're through the buying power that you're adding to the economy by raising the minimum wage, you're generating more jobs and more growth. Whereas if you're keeping wages down and all the income is flowing to the top, well, that income ch- tends to be saved, not spent. It's sort of uh, diverted into passive investments that don't, that aren't nearly as stimulative in terms of jobs and economic growth.
0: So you're more apt to have a Trickle up with raising the minimum wage, and a trickle down. If you say, if say, if you have supply side tax cuts,
2: yeah. If you have supply side tax cuts, you you, well, you you won't get the trickle down claim. Um, If you have middle class and lower income minimum wage boosts, you get you get a a trickle up effect because we're improving the macro economy and the whole kind of um, growth process.
0: I want to stay with the minimum wage for just one minute I'd like you to to explain in the overall picture. I mean, I know that obviously if you raise the minimum wage, you put uh, more money in the hands of those in the bottom quartile. But isn't there like an an overall economic picture? There's also some other benefits from raising the minimum wage. Am I right?
2: Well, I I think certainly. I mean, I think that if you raise the minimum wage, then uh, people will have more disposable income to spend on other investments that they need in their lives, like childcare, like good healthcare, like saving for college. So you create more latitude for families to invest in themselves and to invest in their own human capital, Uh, and that's really critical for upward mobility.
0: And I was also speaking, I mean I wasn't clear, I was speaking more about the isn't like if you raise the minimum wage, don't you, you create a ceiling, I mean or, or 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 a floor rather, and which which uh tends to have an impact on middle class wages as well.
2: Yes. You definitely have um trickle up effects like you described. I don't have at the top off the top of my head what those estimates are, but it definitely has kind of a push effect that um you know, bleeds into the middle class in terms of giving them, uh, uh, you know, a higher wage floor. I would also add that um, another big issue in this area in terms of wages is not just the decline of collective bargaining, but the the fact that we we haven't been aggressively um, pushing toward for full employment. uh, You know, economic history shows that as we get toward full employment, that really raises, with or without unions, that raises the bargaining power of workers, um, because workers are are relatively scarce then relative to uh, the uh, employment that's needed. So that's another area to think about.
0: As you were talking, I was, I was uh, thinking, I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this quote that's attributed to Warren Buffett, and I'm going to paraphrase it so I may not do it justice, but... He he basically says, I don't know if you've heard this now, he says, if if I were born, let's say, in another country or if I were born in another time period in America, it's unlikely that I would have amassed the wealth that I have today. Uh, are you, I'm paraphrasing. Are you, are you familiar with that?
2: Yes. I, I think it's uh, actually an epigraph where I, I've used that quote in several articles I've written, and it was also quoted in a, in a book that I wrote called Unjust Desserts with, with Gar Alpervitz. And that point that Buffett is making is really, really important. One way to illustrate it is to think about an engineer, for example, in 1890, or an engineer in 2015. The engineer of 1890 is was probably just as smart and just as hardworking as the engineer of 2015, but the engineer of 1890 earned about eight times less than the engineer of 2015. None of that had anything to do with any intrinsic qualities of those people. It all had to do with the level of uh, advancement of technology and knowledge that the person born later was able to is able to take advantage of. So a lot of the rise in incomes that we're seeing is really attributable to collective sources of um, wealth building, like knowledge and technology that no individual um, can claim credit for.
0: Finally, what, what would you prescribe? You're, you're, you're king for a day. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're John Kenneth Galbraith, and, and you have the power of J. Edgar Hoover, all combined in one. Uh, what would you prescribe to pull America out of this economic abyss?
2: Uh, three things. I would do everything we can to improve job quality, which is, you know, the wage floor issues that we've talked about, but also things like paid sick days, regular, having regular schedules, um, having paid vacations. Job quality is, I think, a cornerstone of restoring the social contract. A second sort of pillar would be uh, affordable higher ed We have a trillion dollars of student debt out there that, you know, we're saddling our young people with so that even those that do graduate and maybe do get a market premium for that degree, well, that advantage is often offset by the debt that they're carrying, and it really slows them down in terms of upward mobility. So I would uh, do everything we can to restore affordable um, college and in the form of debt-free college. No more taking out loans to get the college degree that every young person deserves. Third thing I would do is really look at the financial system. If you take the the S&P 500, which employs about a third of the workforce, and you look at what they're doing with their profits, last year they sent 90% of their profits to shareholders in the form of um, uh, dividends or Share repurchases, where they're buying their own stock. Um, Back in 1979, it was about 50-50, 50 to shareholders and 50 reinvested in the firm, often in the form of reinvesting in the workforce by raising wages, also research and technology. So our whole kind of commercial model has been financialized in ways that are, you know, are only benefiting executives and shareholders, um, and, in fact, not benefiting shareholders in the long run because companies are disinvesting in their enterprise growth. And I think this is a big factor in the in the stagnation of middle-class wages.
0: Lou Daly, I'd like to thank you uh, for being on the public rally, and hopefully we'll have you back at some point uh, to share some more insight.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was Lou Daly. Director of Public Policy and Research at Demos and author of several books, including Unjust Desserts, How the Rich Are Taking Our Common Inheritance. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, we will speak with Bob Hall, Executive Director of Democracy in North Carolina, about the impacts of voter suppression. After that, Nigel Austin and Ed McNeil will join us to talk about the very successful National Black Theater Festival that took place earlier this year in Winston-Salem. Next time on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. According to the Economic Policy Institute, slow and unequal wage growth in recent decades stems from a growing wedge between overall productivity and pay. In the three decades following World War II, hourly compensation of the vast majority of workers rose in line with productivity. But for the most of the past generation, except for a brief period in the late 1990s, pay for the vast majority has lagged further and further behind overall productivity. Moreover, the report states, pay growth decline has been specifically evident in the last decade, affecting both college and non-college educated workers, as well as blue and white collar workers. The American people have seemingly accepted this slow and methodical change, death by a thousand economic changes that favor business. How is it that corporations have amassed constitutional rights once reserved for individuals? Why does the federal government dare not include a quality index when releasing its monthly jobs report? Why was it crucial for the banking industry to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act? The only way to change this trend is to reclaim the grassroots spirit of the 1960s and early seventies, prodding and provoking and demanding change on myriad levels. When has a growing middle class that left the back door jar for others to enter been bad for the country? American politics remains hamstrung by a narrowly focused business ethos. The electorate has been beaten and blungeoned by cynicism and uncertainty. Meanwhile, The status quo serving the political and economic interests of a few remains intact as it suffocates the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, legitimizing the prophetic observation of former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. Quote, we must make our choice. We may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. That's our show for today. The Public Reality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Reality, I'm Byron Williams.